You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. episode of Popcorn Ronin, we covered the movies, the Hannibal movies, I should say. And this is going to be part two wherein we discuss Hannibal the series. Now, so far there have been two seasons of it, both of them, spoiler, exceptional. And we've gotten actually quite a bit of news about what is going to be happening in season three. I have actually been looking forward to discussing this with you since I started watching this show, I know both of us were actually a little late to the game watching the the show, although I'd started a little bit before you and we watched it, my wife and I, my, my youngest son, and we devoured it. We watched, you know, two, three, sometimes four or more episodes on a lazy weekend and just could not get enough. And And what's funny is that normally... Actually, both my wife and my son aren't too much into the, you know, gruesome kind of shows, especially my wife. If there, She used to love horror shows, but that was a great many years ago. Now, if there's a sight of blood and it's well done, she's not enjoying it as much. But like I told you a while back, too, we've been we watched all of the face off series which for folks who don't know what that is that is the reality game show that pits uh, special effects artists against each other and if you haven't watched it i highly suggest checking it out in fact check out all of the seasons there's only a couple of the seasons that were a little iffy because of the contestants but more often than not as opposed to a lot of other shows they help each other out and everything. It's phenomenal. So it's a, a it's a fun game show to watch. And what it does is it gives you a a whole new appreciation for what goes behind the scenes, even with the simplest of special effects. And so we literally ripped through all of the seasons getting caught up. We're watching the new season as well. And then we started watching Hannibal. And so we could appreciate a lot more the special effects in Hannibal because Hannibal is brutal, not the character of the show. It is quite likely darker than anything that comes to mind that I've seen in television, not just with the characters and whatnot, but in terms of like the the graphic quality of the work, which is, of course, the murders. And, and Hannibal's got a certain flair. <laughs> <laughs> which comes out in how you see some of these these murders. We'll talk about some of our quote-unquote favorite murders um, and, and and see which ones you liked. I like how during the SDC conference, they, they, they called it prepared human beings. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, again, getting to it late, 
What was your immediate impression of the show? Well, I'd always heard good things about it, but I've just kind of developed a habit of not getting into shows when they first start out because it's too frequently led to disappointment, either investing time in something that turns out not to be worth it, like The Walking Dead, or really getting into something that doesn't get renewed for a second season. And we won't talk about that. Yeah. But well, I had heard so many good things about it. I'm like, okay, it's halfway through the second season, definitely getting a third season. I, all right, it's, I'll definitely look for it. And then you said we were covering it. And like, I was into it. I, I watched, I think, the last eight episodes of season two all in one Saturday. <laughs> like that, that was my entire day. It was because I was so invested in seeing how, especially, I'm sure we'll get to it, like the way the story was developing, especially in season two, like there was no good place to stop anyway. No. <laughs> so I just kept going. So yeah, I, I'm actually really happy that I finally jumped in because the, yeah, the show has been pretty great. The thing with this show that I find is that it, touches on so many different things for us you have our knowledge of the books for anyone who's read them our knowledge of the movies for anybody who's watched them then you have spectacular directing acting writing for the tv show and you have characters that you can immediately care for i mean anthony hopkins did a fantastic job obviously as as Hannibal in the movies. And when I started watching the series, I thought, Mickelson isn't going to do the same thing for me. I, I, I could already feel it. The, 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 the stranger accent, because he's a Danish actor, of course. The look of him, too, and things like that. And I don't know, I just... It, it didn't hook me immediately. Or, or I should say, he didn't hook me immediately as someone that would be my favorite. After two seasons... <laughs> Before the second season even started, by far, he he is now for me the definitive Hannibal Lecter. He plays the role so perfectly, and he's creepy when he needs to be. However, it's a lot less often than it is with Hopkins, and I find that works so much better for caring about him as a character. See, it's interesting because I look at it. Obviously, the there are completely different storylines for the characters at this point. Like, going in, I was kind of envisioning it as, okay, it's a prequel. But obviously, the way the story develops, that's not how it turns out. But it's interesting as like a character study of looking at the two different performances. And, you know, which one is the real Hannibal, if you will? Is it the reserved like type that we're seeing out of Mickelson? Who, you know, okay, once he's captured, he puts on an act, like like we see for Hopkins, kind of playing up the, the serial killer cannibalistic role. Or is it the other way around? And is he always, like, naturally the Hopkins character? And then, like, the Mickelson version is, like, the mask he puts on for the public. So, like, looking at that dichotomy between the performances, you really don't know which is the more proper, accurate portrayal of the character. And that's what makes it so fantastic. Well, what's cool, too, and this... Obviously appeals to us, and I know that for a fact because we've discussed it time and time again on our comic book podcast, how we like those alternate reality kind of things. And this is not meant to be integrated into the movies or books. They own the rights to the books, 
And the only problem right now is that they don't own the rights to Sons of the Lambs. MGM still holds those rights and they're trying to negotiate that. And that's why we don't know if Starling will ever appear in there. They said at San Diego, San Diego Comic-Con this year that even if they don't get the rights, it'll be kind of a version of somebody whose name sounds a little bit like that kind of thing that they'll <laughs> introduce in. But what they've said is uh, they referred to Brian Fuller as essentially a mashup DJ. He's just taking different elements from the books and then playing with them in a way that he wants to, to portray the stories. Now, for people who are diehard fans of novels especially or you know the movies that they're based on they may not like that they want it to always remain true but what i noticed especially from a lot of the fan participation at the sdcc too is that people enjoy that mashup mentality and wondering what's going to be coming up next which character from the books are going to make their way in and how are they going to be portrayed because it's not always the same either and so I know that for me, that's a huge pull. I don't have to feel that this is going to be exactly like the books. It's just going to follow kind of some of the same story stories and timelines, but not exact. And I really dig that. Yeah, it's like we were talking about in the last episode how when I had read the Hannibal novel, like all the stuff with the Vergers just was really awkward and I didn't really enjoy it. So when Mason and Margot showed up in the show, again, it kind of set off those warning bells, but the way it was pulled off in the show was completely different and it worked in a much different way. Yeah. So before we get into what's been happening, happening in the, the, the first two seasons and what we can expect from season three, let's talk a little bit about who's actually in this. So like I said, we've got Brian Fuller at the, at the helm and he's the creator and, heavy hand in what goes on in there in terms of acting for the role of will graham we've got hugh dancy now again not having seen manhunter in so many years and and i can't remember that actor's name but i love him william peterson yeah love him he's a great actor but looking at it at who's played the role since then i find that hugh's doing an amazing job portraying the character a lot more i don't know just not twisted but disturbed, disturbed i think is a good in, yeah and and i dig that it makes a lot more sense in, and creates so much more drama as the two come head to head later on yeah, it's definitely more in line with Peterson's performance because the way they played it off in Manhunter was after the whole thing with Hannibal, Peterson actually, or not Peterson, uh, Graham had to go into actual psychiatric institution because his mind was just so messed up from getting into the heads of the killers and especially Hannibal. And that's not something we saw out of you know Edward Norton's performance yeah, in the Dragon, which you know it was a different take on the character so that's the way it was written so that's why he played it but yeah this is definitely much more like that and i even noticed it because again i said i rewatched manhunter recently there's a lot of influences in this oh, yeah. I, like there are even some shots that are almost frame for frame straight out of manhunter which we'll come to later well the the norton's performance i thought was a lot less believable mm-hmm in terms of someone who could do this, someone who could empathize so much that they can 
see everything that the killer is seeing and whatnot. And Norton's performance just didn't come off as that at all. Whereas not just Dancy's performance, but also the, the cinematography that they use for, you know, putting Mm -hmm. him in the scenes and all that. While some may look at it as kind of a, a, a gimmick, it works so well. I, I, I love the effect it works and 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 again it allows you to believe that Graham could put himself in the mind of Lecter and and what that does to him over time. And honestly it's a portrayal that we don't see that much from this type of role. I mean this is not Will Graham isn't the first character it's ever been, like an FBI profiler. But you look at like Criminal Minds, they're, they look at it from a much more like clinical point of view, very statistic-oriented. They don't get into the actual mindset the same way it does here. And for that, you get two completely different styles of shows. But this is definitely much more gripping. Well, especially once he has to prove that he has kind of gone over the edge later on. And we'll talk about that later on as well. You're like, wow, okay, we haven't seen this kind of thing in (laughs) this type of show before. In terms of Jack Crawford this time around, we've actually got Lawrence Fishburne. And once again, comparing him to Keitel and and What's-His-Face in Silence of the Lambs, Fishburne steals this. He is so fantastic and a lot more in charge. I mean, when Mm -hmm. you see... Graham snap at him in the episode where the couple is turned into angels. Yes. And it's like, I did not hear that, I believe is what he says. <laughs> you believe it. And that's like, yeah, I can I, I can I can believe that. He he does such a great job and they stay true to the character of someone that is so driven to get the killers regardless of who they are and regardless of what it does to his team is so driven that he'll steamroll over anybody, make them do anything. So including bending the law and point blank breaking it as well. Yeah. I mean, when you hear the term screen presence, this pretty much defines it. (laughs) What I love, and you know, it's a, it's a double edged sword. We've said this before too. Like we're getting a lot more movie actors in TV right now because it's harder for them to find roles in movies. So they're doing TV shows. Now that's not always the case. Sometimes they just point blank want to do TV as well too. But what it's led to is things like this, where you're seeing amazing actors, like the scene where Fishburne is in the interrogation room with Jillian Anderson. And A, the scene was fantastic. But as a fan of both of them, you're like, it's freaking the Matrix and the X-Files in the same room here <laughs> talking to each other. You're like, oh my God, you're geeking out. And and then, of course, you've got what happens to be Fishburne's wife, Gina Torres, from Firefly, who is amazing in this show, completely different than the stoic Zoe and just someone who is still brave but going through cancer and is I don't want to say fragile because she's not but it's it's not what we're used to from her and and hell even Scott Thompson from the kids in the hall <laughs> is brilliant 
in this. So the performances throughout are so well cast for one, but it's like everybody's on their A game as well. See, it's interesting when you look at the coincidences, like again, going back to Manhunter, that film, as far as the, like the concept and the way it was shot was a huge inspiration for uh, Jerry Bruckheimer starting up the CSI series. So of course he cast William Peterson in the lead role there. And after it was like eight years or whatever, when William Peterson left, they brought in Lawrence Fishburne to be the new lead in that mm-hmm. show. And his character was this, you know, 50-year-old professor who was just starting off as like the rookie in the CSI. And when we talk about performances, and even though it was a very similar style of show and not, a, not a, the same role, the fact that it's Lawrence Fishburne, I don't think he's been believable as a rookie anything since he was 13 years yeah. old. So as hard as he tried, he was just completely unbelievable in the role. But then you put him in here and it's... It's amazing. And it's just funny to see the coincidences between uh, the CSI and Hannibal franchises work out like that. I actually, we'd been watching CSI when he took over. And we watched, I think we watched, I don't know how many seasons he did it for, actually. He only did it for like two or three, I think. Because we didn't watch it in uh, Sam from Cheers. Yeah, which was ridiculous. I, or I say that, but I, we've only seen a little bit of that. And then went, no, we just can't see him in that role. Maybe he's owned it since then. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, no, we saw a little bit of it and it just, it actually didn't work. I thought nearly as much. And it's again, it, in that case it is casting. So, um, moving on to what we saw and we'll start off with season one here. The, the show starts off fairly fast with, um, Graham working with Lecter. Lecter, of course, being brought in as a specialist who can help them to find a serial killer here. And the serial killer, of course, has a pattern of girls that he is killing. And so, right from the get-go, you see what winds up being um, such an important part of both of their characters, but of course, especially Will Graham's. Because Graham actually winds up killing the killer, who was Jared Jacob Hobbs. And it changes him profoundly. They save his daughter, who was actually shot in the neck by her father, but they wind up saving her. And Lecter and Graham form this very odd surrogate parent thing with her. And of course, she's a disturbed young girl as well, having helped her father lure these girls over to be killed. And so, especially Hannibal works to kind of corrupt her while Graham is trying to bring out the light in her. And it's never that, you know, slap you in the face, obvious. It kind of is, but not in that way. It's always, it's well handled. But again, it's not just that that's important, but it's how murdering, killing um, Hobbes really changed Graham. And that lasted two seasons. Yeah. Like it, It's still going on. And I love that the show is so sure of itself that they can keep referring to something from episode one way later on. And if you don't know what it is, go find those episodes and watch them. They're that important. 
the best thing about this first episode, and this is something we've discussed multiple times, both in TV and comics, with that first episode, that first issue being so vitally important to grab the viewer, grab the reader, to really hook them in to continue along the ride. And watching this first episode, of course, going in, we know the whole aspect of Hannibal Lecter's character, but we don't know how it's going to work out in the show. And through the first, what, 45 minutes of the episode, he seems to be perfectly normal. And I was wondering how long they were going to play that game of basically making Hannibal just portrayed as a heroic character. And then you get the scene with him making the phone call. So right there, instantly, I was hooked into the show because I knew from the very beginning he was going to be this malevolent force in the series. Well, they used a lot of what we saw in the movies as well, wherein he he's bored easily and wants to instigate violence and instigate events in others just so that he could see what happens. And mm-hmm. he does that a lot with killers and doesn't try to stop them, just kind of gives them a nudge one way or another, whatever. He'd like them to continue doing what they do because he finds it inspiring. And so we see a lot of that here. And so that warning call to Hobbes was, yeah, right away you're going, okay, yeah, they're staying true to that part of him. And so as you see that later on at different points too, whether he's, you know, visiting specific killers or, or, or abducting them in the case of uh, Dr. Gideon, you're that I like that part of him where it's it's so psychotic that to him, he doesn't want to try to stop anybody else from killing. It's not just his own urges to kill, but it's also that he appreciates what when others do it as well. The strangest thing about this is what we've seen across two seasons, all the portrayals of Lecter and all the things he does. The thing that makes him the most alien to me as a human being is that somebody would spend that much time and effort cooking a meal for themselves. <laughs> and they're Listen, I, I'm all for cooking, but this dude spends like two hours just making a dinner for one. <laughs> Listen, if you went through the trouble of killing somebody and slicing out their organs, you're going to make sure that it's well prepared after. I can make a great barbecue in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think his meals are probably better. So anyways, yeah, so that's, a, a again, a story point that continues throughout the two seasons. Also in the first season, we hear a lot about the Chesapeake River. And that is, there's a Dr. Gideon who is essentially pretending to be the Chesapeake River. And you never really know whether he actually believes it because he's a severely tormented person with some deep psychological problems. But he was also under the care of, uh, of Dr. Chilton, who was played brilliantly in the TV show as well. And so Chilton essentially convinces him that he is a Chesapeake Ripper and being just so that he could get that fame of being the one who's treating him. Now, the, Gideon is still so again, disturbed and, and, and things like that, he, that he still kind of acts out on that at different points. We have scenes with him where he, when he escapes, he actually um, 
convinces Freddie Lowndes, who in this case is an annoying reporter woman, <laughs> her I don't like <laughs> as much. I much prefer preferred what's his face in the movies. Again, keeping in with the characterization, it's more in line from what we saw from Manhunter than from Red Dragon. Right. So, um, so yeah, he's literally ripping apart his former doctors, including Chilton at one point, in front of Lowndes. So he's got some issues there as well. He winds up going back in the the uh, the asylum at one point, and again, it's it's interesting because it's never a straight up stereotype of a character. So even this guy, who is deeply conflicted as to whether or not he actually is a Chesapeake Ripper, to the point of having you know that sitting down at the table with Hannibal, who know who is the Chesapeake Ripper, so he knows. And and there's still some, you know, n- not really ready to admit that he really isn't, that he's pretending. And But then you get him in the asylum where he's actually taking steps, not just to further his own benefits, but also to prevent Graham from becoming a murderer himself. So in a, an odd kind of way, even, somewhat protecting him. Yeah, all the stuff with the Ripper was probably amongst my favorite ongoing storyline in the TV show. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was Eddie Izzard, who I've loved him as a comedian for ages. And I've always thought that from what I've seen, comedians make the best serial killers. <laughs> like we see the way he portrays the role here. And I think a lot of that has to just come down to, you know, a sense of timing and the delivery yeah. of the lines and stuff, because you go over to, again, comparing it to another show, uh, law and order SVU, the best villain they ever had on that show was played by Stephen Colbert. Oh, really? Yeah. And so it, I've just seen it work so many times where you have this comedian character. Um, it was, I think Jason Alexander was, uh, was either a Law & Order or a CSI. He was fantastic. It just works so well every time I see it. And Eddie Izzard is fabulous yeah. as Gideon. Oh, yeah. And they did say he actually is going to be coming back for season three. But they said it's going to be more in flashbacks and things like that. But still, folks were very happy to see that uh, he was coming back. Mm-hmm. So we had some other stuff, too, that was uh, that was very good in the seasons. Various other killers, too. Because while you always have the overarching story going throughout, they're investigating other killers as well. The The leper girl killer was such a good story and character like so out of it and when he rips that layer of skin off her arm i was uh, just shiver thinking about it (laughs) that's one of the creepiest episodes they've done because at that point we're deep into will's psychosis that we now also know is an actual physical illness that's compounding the issue so when he rips literally rips the skin off her arm we don't know if that was real or not yeah. <laughs> until you know the rest of the investigative team gets there and looks at it and uh, okay. And that's one of the things that made that, that first season so disturbing is we never knew what was real and what wasn't. So having something completely insane like that happen and turn out to be real, they, all, the gloves were off at that point. Pardon the pun. Literally, yeah. <laughs> and of course she sees – at one point, Lecter knows because he's killing someone and knows that he is the one that's the murderer. So she has to go. And that spark from the comb in that oxygen chamber, 
again, they were so original with a lot of the manner in which people were killed or dismembered or skin or whatever. And just seeing that screaming person on fire in that chamber was haunting. I mean, that whole arc with that character was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So the season ends with Graham being accused of killing Abigail. The character had been kind of in hiding for a little while, so you didn't hear quite as much about her. And then all of a sudden, we've got Graham puking out an ear. (laughs) Again, not knowing if it's real or not until somebody else comes to confirm. Yeah. So we find out that it's Abigail's and that they suspect that he killed her. Again, the whole story arc with Abigail and then her killing that, that, uh, that young man as well. And, and, uh, Lecter helping her to kind of hide her from it and make it look like it's something else. She was a, a favorite of, of many people as well, too. She was brought up a couple of times at the SDCC panel as well. People really were hoping to see more, and apparently we are going to see more of her in Season 3 as well, but they didn't quite say whether we're talking flashbacks or what the plans to do. I don't know. But um, because, of course, at the end of Season 2... and. and a little late to say this, of course, but we've spoiled some of season one. We're going to spoil season two as well. So just there you go. So at the end, of course, of season two, she and Graham are both shot, but we don't know what's going to happen. So one would assume that they're both going to make it, of course. So going into season two now, you've got Graham on trial for these murders and not just of, of Abigail, but now also the Chesapeake Ripper murders. And it's the the tone of the show changed dramatically. And sometimes I can kill a show, but here it didn't. And it was very much a cat and mouse with Lecter playing with his food. And he doesn't want Graham to to be killed. He doesn't actually want him to be found guilty because he's still having fun with him. He just wants him transformed. He wants to mold him to be even more of a killer. So you wind up with some some deaths of important people in the trial so that they try to have the trial canceled out. There's a word I'm looking for here. Mistrial. Mistrial. Because he... Obviously, couldn't be the Chesapeake Ripper, but there's always a slight little problems, and it takes a while before Graham is finally released, realizing that he is not. And it might be because we watched the episodes back to back to back to back <laughs> that <laughs> it it didn't feel like it lasted too long. It felt like they gave it the weight and scope that it required. And it was still always just as interesting, especially with Graham behind bars a lot of the time and his interaction with Gideon, his interactions with Chilton, trying to still help out with murders while being stuck behind bars when we've got, um, uh, what's her name? I want to see Beverly. The yeah. one that gets sliced. Yeah, that was Beverly. The Beverly. So when he's working with her as well, and she's kind of looking at him differently. So you wind up still with a a very tight psychological suspense 
show. And and again, I, I really liked how they worked that around this the, the court drama as well. And just the flat-out inversion of roles yeah. of having Graham the one behind bars and Lecter the one outside. I, the, the last shot of that first season was so brilliant of Lecter walking up and sitting down in the chair in front of Will's cell just because of the inversion from what we've seen between silence of the lambs and everything else that that last shot of the first season i i can't stress enough how important that was for the entire second season yeah and then once graham is out well at this point now graham knows and has known for a while the lector is not just a chesapeake killer ripper i should say but also just responsible for a great many other deaths as well so he is being very careful especially like when he's dealing with beverly and telling her to not just go by herself and of course in typical horror show fashion she's got to go out in the dark chamber in his house by herself (laughs) so she paid for it but uh but you have a, a, a very different relationship between the two of them at that point because it had been fun in the first season the relationship that they had kind of working together but what I like is that Fuller isn't trying to, you know, do a moonlighting thing here where something is dragged on far too long relationship-wise. Here you have the relationship change drastically in season two between the two of them where, again, you're having to the point of them trying to kill each other <laughs> <laughs> through proxies at different times. But then when Graham comes out of prison and or the asylum, I should say, and they resume their relationship, not their friendship, but their relationship. And because of how screwed up Graham is, yes, you know he's working somewhat undercover to try to capture Lecter in some manner. You never really know whether he's just gone over the edge at any point either because he changes so drastically. It's at that point, and I pointed it out to the wife too. The first time they sit opposite each other in the, the in therapy after he's been released, all of a sudden now, Graham is dressing up and for the first time, his hair is actually combed <laughs> because, of course, Hannibal, uh, unless there's a running around scene or whatever, Hannibal's hair in this show is perfect all the time there's not a hair out of place on this man and while graham always has this shaggy mop and again it's small things like that that you know they do it on purpose to convey the type of person that the actor is supposed to be and as soon as he sits down opposite him having been released and trying now to capture him all of a sudden now he's taking on some of those appearance properties of Lecter, the, the dressing up, the perfectly combed hair and all those things. And I thought, wow, that is, it was just so brilliant how subtly it was placed in there. I'll go even farther to say that after the episode with the animal killer, yes, the guy that was with the weird exoskeleton, I was convinced that Will had crossed over. The The show had me convinced for a good two or three episodes that Will was gone. Well, that's the one too where... Will actually defaces the body. And you're going like, there's a line there (laughs) where they don't make you cross that if you're undercover. 
and defacing someone's body like that is just not something you do. So again, that's where you're like, holy crap, either A, he's completely lost it because no sane person can do that. Or again, the unit, Jack Crawford's unit here is so far off track, which you find out later, of course, it is, that they will do anything to bring Lecter in. All of these things play together so well to create this unbelievable tension that that is like palpable yeah and then once they bring freddie back into it it was like there 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 was there's no turning back from this like season three is gonna be jack crawford hunting down will graham like that i had already set it up that that's where it was going so you've got yeah freddie is is back you also have the murder of the councilman who's turned into the tree which was freaking amazing in terms of the special effects for that oh my god that was amazing and and then of course the season does end with the massive massive fight at lecters involving jack and will graham and bloom who'd had a relationship with lecter we can't just skim over that, but we kind of will. <laughs> but, I mean, that is huge in season two because she, he's always been her rock. He, She knew him before Graham and Crawford. And she's the one that brought him to the FBI to help them. And so this is something that the actress actually talked about on at SDCC, how she sees it as everybody else is kind of acting crazy except for Lecter who is just this center of calm and that draws her in and so they have this relationship which here's here's how great season two was by the time they got to that big climactic battle at the end despite the fact that I watched the entire season in two days I forgot that they'd already showed us that fight (laughs) at the beginning that again that's we see that in a lot of shows where they will show you the ending first and then, you know, two days ago, boom, it starts from that point. And it's a gimmick that I often don't like. Right. But, my God, did it ever work well here. Because you knew from the get-go that Crawford was going to get sliced up, beat the crap out of by a lecture at some point, presumably at the end of the season. And it helped build it up because you're, you're waiting and you're waiting. When is this going to happen as it's getting closer and closer? Like it's, it's the tension keeps building. So in this case, it was appropriate and it worked so well. And it's another one of those interesting switches because Anthony Hopkins was not a small man. And his lector was very physically powerful. And we saw him hauling dudes around, doing amazing stuff. Well, you're not going to get that when Lawrence Fishburne is on the other side of that knife. But the way Mickelson and the show portrayed that version of Lecter, of just being better, you know, it, it, I believed that, yeah, this little Danish guy could take out, you know, 
Lawrence Fishburne. Well, there was a lot. Again, it was just the techniques he used in fighting. So it was more about precision and things like that, and while still having actually a lot of power to mm-hmm. him, whereas um, Fishburne's was just brute force. Which I think that actually, again, being an FBI, I think there'd be a lot more training in there too. And there was some, but no, it was. It was believable and the tension was high during that time. Right. The thing that's important here too, again, and and this is just to say again, how much is going on in this show and it never feels muddied because of it. There's the entire storyline with the pig farmer, (laughs) his sister, who convinced, who, who has an affair with Will. And is going to have his baby. And then later everybody kind of dies. But I mean, that entire thing is huge throughout as well. There's so much going on in these these two seasons. And that, that was really the storyline that kind of cemented how we see Lecter likes to create killers. Because he was pushing Will in one direction. He was pushing Margot in another direction. And we even had that little bit... Uh, I think it was the second season, the guy at the uh, the the violin player. That was the first one. That was the first season? The okay. cello player. But we, but we just see how Lecter likes to push people, again, like you said, just to see what they'll do. But that really came to a head with the whole uh, season two, even to the point where none of them <laughs> followed through with it. And we saw Lecter had to take matters into his own hands. And God, that was, I hate to say that was great because it was awful. <laughs> But yeah. All right. So which was your favorite quote unquote prepared human being? (laughs) For me, it's a toss up just because of how insane they were. You could tell they sat down in the writer's room one day and went, okay, what's the craziest way you can think of to kill a person? And for me, it was a tie between the mushroom farm and the beehives. Hmm. Just because they were so out there. They actually talked to... They talked about this at SDCC as well, where they were talking how Fuller would go up to them and say, okay, you're going to die. You're going to get shot in the gut, but don't worry, you won't die. Or or, or, this is how (laughs) you're going to get killed. And they were saying how it was such a dark kind of atmosphere to be in at times, but that it was so much fun because of the the enthusiasm they brought to killing people. So that was kind of cool. I have to say, I still... Especially having watched the face-off shows right around that time. Right. Beverly's death being sliced up into those glass panels was the one that stood out the most. Like, we were looking at that going, oh my God, can you imagine the work that went (laughs) not the in-show work? of freezing someone and slicing them up. But the the work that went into that for the special effects artists to do something like that, and so precisely, and it created such an interesting cinematic opportunity where she looks like herself, and then as the camera rotates, you see the rows of her. And I was like, oh my God. It was, it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, again, looking at it from a behind-the-scenes perspective, you also have to respect the totem pole as well. Yeah, the totem pole was phenomenal. The cello player that you mentioned as well, turned into a cello, was amazing. The 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 couple, the angels, again, gruesome, but 
holy crap. And then they call it the horse turducken. <laughs> That's what they call it. Um, another one. But when you look at the eye of God, mm-hmm. how they chose people because of their skin color for how it would affect the look of the eye. And then what that meant for the final person that escaped and then the when he puts the killer in it and then they have that argument of is it it's supposed to be a reflection and and but it doesn't fit and, and what it meant to the story was phenomenal and that's just another one where the actual final reveal of the eyeball because as viewers we had no idea what was going on until that end of that episode where you finally zoom out and you're like oh I get it now. <laughs> yeah. Because with so many others, we see the end result first. Beverly is by far my favorite, but that eye of God, just for not just the effect that it created, but how it influenced the story w- was just brilliant is mm-hmm. what it was. So did you actually watch the SDCC? Uh, I did then? not. Okay. It was very interesting. They were talking about what's going to be happening with the story and they're fairly open with spoilers. So it was kind of interesting to hear. It is going to be one year later. So they wanted to establish a timeline so that as people are introducing things like that, then you, um, you're going to be curious about where they've been, what they've been doing. And of course, Hannibal's been on the run since then. Now, season two, all of the episode names were after Japanese um, meals. And they said that season three is going to be all Italian. I, I assumed like they were going to pick up on the Italian storyline from Hannibal. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what they're they were saying too. Like again, they're 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 following in the steps somewhat loosely of the novels, which is why somebody brought up Starling and will we ever see Starling in the the TV show? And she, the 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 one of the producers explained that you know it depends on if they can get the rights to it or not. If so, you're looking at maybe season four, that storyline unfolding. If not, they'll make up something, and they said it might very well be even better than what we saw on the show. But I also do have to like how they showed a version of that exact same thing with, uh, what's her name, Miriam. Yes. Where Jack basically pulled the same trick previously with another uh, trainee, which, again, if you look at it from the point of view of eventually he's going to do the exact same thing with Clarice – this guy just doesn't learn his lesson. <laughs> he just is so driven. He doesn't care. I yeah. don't think that it's a lesson that can be learned because uh, he'd lost her. He thought she was gone. Again, we skipped over that, but that's a massive plot point for Crawford. And having thought he had lost this young agent and then later they find her arm and then later they find her. And, and it go, again, it shows the brilliance of Lecter knowing that if she's out and she hears the, the voice that she's going to shoot the wrong person. So it was, it was just a phenomenal bit again, that was throughout there, a little overarching story. And I, I can't remember if the shooting, yeah, the shooting was in the second season. Yeah. And then in the first though, you got hints that uh, she might still be alive with the arm and everything. Yeah. And like you said, we, we kind of, glossed over the whole thing with that storyline tying into the whole Ripper thing yeah. and 
Chilton's eventual comeuppance for just being a slimy human being. <laughs> like that's one of those times where, okay, justice wasn't done, but I was okay with it <laughs> because it was Chilton. <laughs> but just that whole setup of him coming home and seeing the tableau that Lecter had prepared for him yeah. was brilliant oh, again. Well, it, it, again, it shows that as smart as he thinks he is, he knows Lecter's in a whole other league. So, yeah, it was great. Shilton, the guy who plays Shilton actually showed up at SCCC and the crowd went nuts. Like, there was somebody cosplaying as him, <laughs> which was hysterical. So they, they talked to him a while, too. They also, Fuller was talking about who is going to be appearing in season three. And there's different people from the books and, and from uh, the from the shows as, as well that people are going to recognize like there's going to be commander uh, potsy is going to be in lady murasaka murasaki is going to be in it which they have some by the sound of a pretty big plans for her so it's going to be interesting how they're they work with that can't be any worse than the movie version yeah yeah it's um i have high hopes that it'll be good actually um cordell dollar hide so there's going to be a lot in season three to look forward to for sure I, at this point, I absolutely can't wait. What night does this air? Yeah, I don't know. They, Mondays, they, I think. They, they said that it's going to be actually separated in two storylines. So it's actually going to be what would have amounted to season three and four all in one instead with the first story arc finishing halfway through and then starting the second one. So they're- See, that is the absolute worst thing about marathoning a show to catch up. Because then you have to wait a week. Every oh, God, time. yeah. Tell me about it. And unfortunately, this is going to be one that we will not be able to to wait for. We are going to have to watch it every single week. Absolutely. So what I like as well, too, is they were talking to the writers and to Fuller and the writers about it. And the writers were saying how the characters are different than what were in the movies and in the books. In large part, not because of the writing, but because of the actors that come in as well. So the writers are very much influenced by where the actors take the characters and then proceed from there kind of thing. So a lot of the the, the differences, whether they're subtle or not, you know, are not just because they were written that way, but also the actors really have a large role in that. We're also going to be seeing a lot more, apparently, of Gillian Anderson, which is awesome. Great. She was fantastic. She was so freaking good in this. And it was funny. Did you know that actually the role, when it was originally written, was for an older woman to the point that they were going to use Angela Lansbury for the role? They had her in mind, but she couldn't do it because she was. Please tell me there was a screen test for that somewhere. Oh, that would be funny. (laughs) But uh, but they, they cast Anderson. And I mean,. She's been fairly typecast because of playing Scully. So I love seeing her in a way different role. A lot more quiet, still incredibly intelligent, understands what is happening and disturbing because of what she's been through as well. So the hinting was kind of a little weird, but it almost sounded like she's going to be with Hannibal. I could be wrong about that. Well, we saw them both on the same plane in the last shot. Yeah, but she was also escaping him because he was going to eat her. So who knows? Exactly. So it's kind of hard to tell what's what. So 
I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. They said that the first half of the season is going to be a lot more about the pursuit of Hannibal and not as much about the FBI and chasing other murderers and things like that. So again, we're going to see a difference from the first two seasons, but it's in such good hands that I have faith that it'll be just as suspenseful. Yeah. At this point, they have my complete faith. So, uh, so any favorite episode per se that you wanted to talk about? See, it's really hard to, to boil it down into individual episodes because of the overarching storylines that came and went and intersected with each other. That, that's why I just remember some of, like you say, the prepared humans, the ones that stand out, because I don't think there was really one episode that you can take apart from anything else. Right. The, uh, they talked to, oh my God, what's his name again? I'll have to look it up. Um, the, 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 the person who directed the first episode, the pilot, and also directed the final, uh, the season finale for season two as well. And they they spoke to him, uh, Slade, David Slade, and they, they spoke to him. And he set a lot of the tone for the show going forward with that pilot. And he talked about how he wanted it to be very dark. And he talked to his cinematographers and stuff like that. And they wanted it very dark, very little lighting to the point where people are, as he was saying, on the edge of their seats, trying to see more, trying to get into it more. And... That's something that's pervasive throughout the entire show. Same as the music. The the music in this show is unbelievable and perfectly married into whatever episode it is. It, it mm-hmm. was phenomenal. So that's going to wrap it up then. If you have not caught these first two seasons, I cannot recommend this enough. Even if you're a little squeamish, it's worth watching. Just remind yourself it's all fake. It's worth watching just to see the psychological drama throughout with all of the characters. It's not just Graham and, and Lecter, but it's Lecter and everybody. It's Graham and Crawford. Everybody is brilliant together in different ways, and which, again, really makes me look forward to season three and also to see who they bring in to season three. I mean... Even the people that were only in for a few episodes, even like Lance Henriksen was amazing in the episode that he was in. Like when that was being written, the writer said that he said, you know, who would be great for this Lance Henriksen would be great. <laughs> and it stayed at that. And it wasn't until they were filming it that Fuller came up to him and says, oh, come on, I'll introduce you to Hex. And he went, he's here. You got him. <laughs> so, so you get all those things. And Everybody they're bringing in, once again, is bringing their A-game. So if you haven't seen this, definitely watch those two seasons. I believe they're both still on Netflix, but I'm not 100% certain. If not, buy the damn things. They're, that no, they're, they're not on Netflix. I had to catch them through my cable on demand. Oh, okay, because they were for a little while, because that's what we watched them off of Netflix. Mm-hmm. So anyways, and then season three, I don't know the exact date that it's starting, but we'll be watching it. For sure. It'll be awesome. With that, make sure to go to Popcorn Road and let us know what you thought about the shows and join us next uh, next episode. I haven't quite decided what we're doing yet. I have a couple of ideas. Though. I have a suggestion, actually. Oh, we're supposed to be doing your episode soon, if not yeah, you, next one. You said it was going to be after the next one. Okay. All right. Well, anyways, make sure to join us on our next episode. And like I said, check us out at popcornronin.com. Take care. Take care.
more movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.